turn to Colossians chapter 2. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And allow me to read today. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here ends the reading of God's word. I'm Jim. It's, it's wonderful to worship with you. It's wonderful to get to hang out with uh, my old friend, Bill. He, when he hired me, he, he didn't say it this way. His suspicion was, I don't know about this guy. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, but now we're, we're, uh, we're very close friends, and he's something of a mentor to me. And not something. You are a mentor to me. So I appreciate our friendship. So I've, I, left, I left the worship, the worship pastor position that I was at at a church to join Surge, a emissions agency. And, and there's, I've got these little cards with my face on them for your refrigerator, but most people turn them around and put my family so that they can see my family instead of me. Uh, but grab one of those if, if you are interested in hearing more about my, my ministry. It's to burned out pastors, burned out missionaries, and the team that I'm on at, at Surge is called the Gospel Renewal Team. And so there's something about the name of this church that strikes a chord with the work that I do. We are, in, we are all in the business of gospel renewal. Gospel renewal leads to mission. So if you want to hear more about that, uh, there's a sign-up sheet. Uh, put your name, your email address. If you put your phone number, that just means that I'm going to text you every once in a while and say I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? Um, and grab one of these, grab one of these uh, prayer cards. So this summer I've been raising support, raising the finances to do this, this mission work. Uh, I've also been doing a lot of gardening. My wife owns a garden bed business, and so uh, that means a lot of mulching. I have a peach tree uh, from, from Texas that I brought back. Uh, uh, my wife and I are from Texas. And, and I got some grape vines, and my wife has dahlias. So we've been doing a lot of support raising, a lot of gardening, and a lot of binge watching of Stranger Things. You guys know the show, Stranger Things? Uh, season four, uh, we've, been, we've been cranking through all seasons this, uh, this summer. And so I have Stranger Things in my imagination. So when, we came to this, when I came to this passage, it's like, okay, Colossians 2, Stranger Things, this is totally going to work. So if you've seen it, uh, good. If you haven't, it's okay, because 
The word of God is what is important. Um, so, so I love this show, not just because I'm a child of the 80s and the nostalgia of it just gives, brings back all the feels of, of the 80s, uh, but I'm also fascinated for two reasons. I'm fascinated with how this show pokes holes in our culture's purely secular, materialistic worldview. Uh, we're coming into a post-secular age uh, where, where people are more open to the mysteries beyond the material world. Stranger Things explores uh, this idea. It's set in, in Hawkins, Indiana, and there's this breach between uh, a, a supernatural world and, and the regular physical world. And uh, through that breach is a hellish copy of, of Hawkins, Indiana. So there's Hawkins, Indiana, and then through this breach, there's the Upside Down, which is a distorted version of, of the real world. Much of, the, much of the plot revolves around rescuing people from this evil place or protecting people from the evil that has escaped from this Upside Down. So, so uh, Stranger Things presupposes a, a spiritual realm, okay? The second reason why I, I like this is because, why, why I like this show is because it, it deals with the way that the spiritual realm affects your daily life. In the, in the latest season, there's this evil, demonic character. If you don't like horror films, don't watch this show, because uh, it's, it's scary. Um, but in the season, there's an evil character that preys on people who are struggling. They're, they're overwhelmed with guilt, overwhelmed with shame um, for something that they've done in their past. And so they have insomnia, they have headaches, and they have other mental illnesses. They're haunted by regret. And, and that enables this evil character to curse them and to put them into a trance. So I can't stop watching this show because I know what it feels like to be haunted by guilt and shame. We know what it feels like to be haunted by guilt and shame, to feel the anxiety of, of regret. So, so I know, that I, and I can relate to the insomnia that comes from having unreconciled relationships or destructive habits. Um, I know what it feels like to be angry and to say something that I regret those feelings of guilt and shame, they have a haunting power. So our message in Colossians today addresses these two ideas, the reality of a spiritual realm and the way that spiritual realm impacts our physical, material lives. Do you have a hard time, do you have a hard time seeing how the spiritual realm impacts your daily life, how it's played out in your daily life? When was the last time that you thought about how supernatural beings or demonic forces were involved in your physical life? Do you have a hard time seeing the spiritual implications of your job, your, your hobbies, or, or your, your, your activities, your family? Maybe you don't even believe that there's a spiritual realm. And, and, and so why would it be crucial to your physical life? Or maybe you're okay with, maybe you're okay with the idea of like all other dimensions or, or like a multiverse or some, some sort of scientific explanation for other realms. But the idea of personalities that hate you 
that hate God and want evil for you. That's, that's silly. Or maybe you feel like sin has mastery over you. Like a terrible song that gets stuck in, stuck in your head. There's a, there's a Boy George, a certain Christmas song that gets stuck in my head and, and I feel like I'm being tormented every, every time the, the radio, B1, uh, what is it, B101? What is it that, that plays all the Christmas tunes? They play that one over and over again and it gets stuck in my head and we're not gonna say the name of the song, okay? We're not gonna ruin this, this beautiful day. But sin can have a mastery over us like, like a, a song that gets stuck in our head. Uh, or do you, do you ever feel swept away by greed and anger? Uh, do, you, do you feel held captive by your own pride or, or envy? Do you hear the voices of guilt and shame that haunt you because of your lust or your gluttony? Or maybe you, you don't think much about any of these things because laziness has mastery over you. We're going to see that, that St. Paul presumes the reality of a spiritual realm of false gods and demons, real personalities and powers that hate God and hate you. And they have an impact on your physical reality. But Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. And he offers freedom from these powers. So in our passage today, Paul recounts a story of liberation that Jesus offers. So I want us to find ourselves in this story, this story of liberation. And I'm going to do it by answering four questions. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's the first question. Who is our real enemy? Second, what happens when we participate with that enemy? Third, what has Jesus done to liberate us? And finally, how can we participate with Jesus? So let me pray as we jump in. Father, we love you, and as we gather together in your name, as we gather as your people, we, we, want, to, we want to know you, and we want to know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, and we, we want to become like you in your death, and we want to understand what it means to be people of grace and mercy. So, so show us your love as we sit before you. Speak to us. Give us life, we pray, in your name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, life everlasting. Amen. So who, who is our real enemy? All right, you have your finger on Colossians 2. Maybe if you have a really quick ability to find Ephesians 6, 12, flip to there. Or if, you're, if you take notes in the margin of your, of your Bible, just next to Colossians 2, jot Ephesians 6, 12. Because this is... This verse is important as we engage with the passage that we're going to really jump into. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is Paul's theology of the spiritual realm. We need to understand, this. We, need the, we need this passage in order to understand Colossians 2. So now, let's jump into Colossians 2, verse 8. I'm going to read it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul wrote Colossians to, 
to a group of pagan Gentile converts to Christianity that are living in a pluralistic culture, much like ours, um, you know, where it's a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that belief, whatever, whatever works for the best life possible. It's a syncretism. Before coming to Christ, they participated in pagan rituals, which were like blatant worship services to false gods, the elemental spirits of this world. Paul uses this phrase, elemental spirits, here in Colossians, but he also uses it in Galatians. And I want to explain what elemental spirits means. Uh, Galatians 4.3, you can do a little, an another little note next to your Colossians too. Galatians 4.3 says this, So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. Enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. And then Galatians 4.9 says this, Now, however, you have come to know God, or, or rather be known by God. How can you turn, turn back again to the weak and beggarly? I love that Paul's like really jabbing at these, at these personalities. These weak and beggarly elemental spirits. How can you want to be enslaved to them again? So the Greek word for elemental spirits is stoicheia. All right, Greek lesson. Here we go. Ready? Uh, let's say it together. Stoicheia. Stoicheia. Nice. You'll never forget it. <laughs> it, it has multiple meanings. Okay, so it means, first it means like a worldview or a philosophy, or a, a life principle, like stoicism or humanism. You know, it's kind of like, this is the way that I live my life. Um, second, it means a, a worship of angels in during that time, there, were, there was a mystical Judaism that, that worshipped angels. And so stoicheia also involved the worship of angels. Third, it, it means like the worship of, of the elements. Earth, wind, fire, water. Um, these elements were worshipped, but it was also understood that these elements had a divine power behind them, a divine personality. Um, the Saramakan people that we prayed for would understand what we're talking about. Fourth, it would mean evil spirits, uh, pagan gods assigned to different realms of life, like the god of health, the god of, of sports, the god of fantasy football, the god of, uh, of farming, of the god of sex and procreation. All of these were elemental spirits. So this broad category included what Paul, what Paul says in this passage, philosophy and empty deceit. Well, that's, don't, get, don't, don't be held captive to, to the stoicism or the, this is the way that I, this is my philosophy of life. Uh, or human tradition, when, when Paul says human tradition, think uh, the rules and regulations that you place on yourself for a better life. For Paul, it was the idea of being a Torah-keeping Jew where circumcision is a basic requirement for belonging to the people of God. It's religious rule-keeping. Uh, and then later in verse 10, Paul uses the term all rules. Uh, Christ is above all rule and authority. All rule and authority, that is, Paul is talking about the elemental spirits. So what he's talking about is real demonic forces, real spiritual powers and principalities of darkness that hate God, but are powerless to dethrone him, so they go after God's image bearers, dragging us into the destruction that's meant for them. 
They think, you know, we can't hurt God, but we can go after his children. Paul's speaking to people who know well and understand the evil powers in, uh, of the spiritual realm. They understand better than we do in our secular age uh, that the spiritual and the physical overlap. So they look at the stars, you know, and they say, ah, oh, those are angelic beings. And we say, in our modern scientific worldview, we go, oh, silly ancient person, that's a flaming ball of gas floating by gravitational forces through vacuous space in an ever-expanding universe. Silly ancient person. And they say, they would say, well, sure, of course it is. But it's also being held together by angelic beings. We don't have the comprehension in our culture to understand how the, the spiritual and the physical overlap like they did, like Paul's context did. We modern people tend to look down on those simple-minded, unscientific folks who, who build an idol and worship it like it's a god. But that completely disregards the powers of darkness that are behind that physical thing. Let me explain it to you this way. You may not have like a stereotypical idol in your house. That's, that's silly. You may have a shrine to your favorite sports team. You may even have a room dedicated to that sports team. And when they win, it affects your emotions. When they win, you're happy. When they win, you are kind and generous to your friends and, and family. When they lose, you are not happy. When they lose, everyone better stay away from, everyone better stay away from daddy because he's, he's very angry right now because his team lost. It affects, it affects you because it's got a power over you. Or maybe you don't dress or decorate an idol uh, that you have in your room. Um, but you have, you have all the clothes that you've seen at the mall. You have all the clothes that you've seen online. And when you see something and you want it, you buy it. You can't help yourself. Or maybe you have a really nice car in your, in your driveway, and you baby it, you wash it every weekend, and if someone scratches it, man, you flip out. We've been duped into thinking that there's no spiritual component to these physical things, but it's not the thing in itself. It's not the sports team. The sports team is not evil. It's not the clothing. Clothing is not evil. It's not the car. It's the power that is behind those things, the power to control you, to captivate you, to put you in a trance. These things haven't gone away. The spiritual realm and the evil way that the spiritual realm wants to impact you has not gone away in our secular age. It's just become more subtle. It's like if a, if a little demon popped up out of the ground and, and offered you all the riches of the world, if you would just do whatever it said, you would probably run away. But if a commercial for the Pennsylvania Lottery pops up on TV and you, and you see that it's offering $350 million, you might find that you're wasting your paycheck away, jotting down your lucky numbers because it's got a power over you. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is the demonic powers of sin and darkness, the elemental spirits of this world. So, second point. What happens when we participate with this enemy? This enemy that hates God and hates you. 
Verse 8 says this, see to it that no one takes you captive. These powers are real. They hate God, and they hate you. But they can't, uh, they can't do anything to you with, without, <laughs> uh, without the Lord's permission, right? So, so I heard a pastor say, that, say it like this one time. Um, and I love this metaphor. So, so keep this metaphor in your, in your mind for the rest of this sermon. It's, it's like your heart is a piano. The demons can't sit down and play at the keys. But they can hum dissonant chords that resonate with your sinful desires to make songs of destruction in your life and those around you. Does that make sense? Only Jesus is allowed to play the piano that he made. But, man, your heart resonates with sinful desires. And these evil powers and principalities that want your destruction know just what note to hum that, that, that ignites temptation in your heart. So let me say it this way. When you sin, you are not just breaking some moral law against God. When you sin, you are also participating with the powers and principalities of darkness. You are participating with, you know, in Stranger Things uh, vernacular, you're participating with the upside down, the anti-kingdom of God. Our heart will always produce either songs of goodness or songs of destruction. There is no neutrality. And that's really hard for us to, to, to embrace. There is no neutrality. Goodness and love or evil and destruction. So let's take the, um, let's take the seven deadly sins as an, an, as an example. Because we want to understand that the, the powers that take us captive. Right? Pay attention to the emotions that we have, and we'll start to uncover how we resonate with those temptations, with those evil desires. So the seven deadly sins, you know, greed, lust, pride, gluttony, laziness, anger, envy. These are powers that we flirt with, and, and then they overtake us. Paul under understands these aren't impersonal forces. Uh, they're demonic personalities. So we participate with them. We let them resonate with our hearts, and then suddenly they sweep us up, and, and we're held captive by their song. And then after that, they accuse you because you know that what you've done is wrong, and your guilt empowers more accusation, and then there's this spiraling down. So for me, envy, envy is my default. So any growth in contentment in my heart is like a real genuine miracle of God. So how does envy begin? Um, there's a voice that sings a song of envy that resonates with me. That person over there is happier than you because they have that thing or they are that kind of person that you wish you were. The desire builds in my heart until that spiritual energy empowers some sort of action, either a bad attitude or a shopping spree. You know, I, I'm going to go get whatever it is that I've been envying. Or frustration that I can't be like that person or depression 
that I can't be what I wish that I was. And envy just takes me down. Again, there's no neutral space. Your life will sing the goodness and love of God or it will bring envy, evil, <laughs> misery. So, so come, Lord Jesus, and, and rescue us from the songs of sin and death that hold us captive to destructive powers. Come, come, Lord Jesus. These things are real, and when we participate with them, we are participating with evil. But our third point is this. What has Jesus done to liberate us from our enemy? It seems our secular age has, has made us blind to the elemental spirits of this world. Um, and Paul takes it very seriously that this realm of evil hates God and hates you and wants to destroy you. So don't be held captive by the false gods that reside under your pagan practices, your ritualistic rule-keeping. Don't bother with that silly stuff. Not when, not when you have Jesus. So look at, look at verse 9. This is commonly seen as like the pinnacle of, of the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul wants us to compare Jesus with the elemental spirits of this world and, and see that Jesus is not on the list of elemental spirits. He's not one of the elemental spirits. He is above. He is supreme. He is over all rule and authority. Why would you participate in the weak and beggarly elemental spirits of this world when the fullness of divinity is yours in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's what Paul's saying. Why would you go to the other gods when you have the fullness of God dwelling in you? Why would you sing their songs? So, for example, why would you sacrifice your life to the God of beauty in order to worship the God of popularity? Why would you sacrifice the God, to the God of money in order to fellowship with the God of power? Why would you sacrifice to the God of sex to appease the God of significance? Why would, you, why would you piecemeal your idolatries together only to be enslaved to these lesser powers when the fullness of the divinity is already yours in Christ and Christ is in you? Paul goes on in verse 11 to talk about what exactly it is that we have in Christ. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Why would you go back to human tradition and regulation? And that's symbolized through, through the rite of circumcision. Why would you do that when you've been baptized into Christ? Jesus is reinforcing this point that Torah-keeping that the Judaizers are enforcing on these Colossian Christians, it's actually just another way of participating with the elemental spirits of this world. In Colossians 2.20, Paul says it this way, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, there it is again, stoicheia, if you died to that, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Okay, so, so there's rule-keeping, and then there's pagan worship. 
All of this is participation with the elemental spirits. Why would you be taken captive by that? So then... To do that, you'll need to be online. Interesting. Siri just told me I need to be online. <laughs> so verse, verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul's getting to the specifics of what Christ has done for us. You were cut away from those powers. You died to those songs that used to entrance you when Jesus died on the cross. His death marked the end of their power over you, and his resurrection brought you into Christ's life. Then here's my favorite part, uh, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So who are the rulers and authorities? Those are the elemental spirits, the powers and principalities of darkness, the demonic, the demonic powers that hate God and hate you. Jesus disarmed them so that they're powerless, and, and he, he put them to open shame. That means that, that they are revealed for what they really are, false gods, liars, powerless to fulfill the promises that they make. He disarmed them. What was the enemy's weapon? What did Jesus disarm? You know, like I imagine Jesus going over and like disarming them. Well, what did he disarm? What was the weapon? What was the song that the enemy sings? Accusation. Condemnation. Accusation, that's what the word Satan means, by the way. The accuser. So Jesus' death and resurrection brought forgiveness of all our trespasses. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. So I say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? There's a difference between conviction of sin from the Spirit. Holy Spirit brought conviction of sin and condemnation of sin from the accuser. You know that? There's a difference. When the Holy Spirit convicts, that's a conviction unto life. When the accuser condemns, that's a condemnation unto death. Condemnation is the song that the accuser sings over you, and it resonates with your guilt and your shame-ridden life. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The voice of accusation, beloved, is not God's voice. Our Savior does not sing the song of accusation to you. Do not be held captive by these powers. Not when you've been filled to the fullest with the one who is the fullness of God. There is so much fullness in Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul's using a military illustration, right? There's a disarming that he does. In Roman times, the great military leader would, would demonstrate his victory that he had in far-off lands by, by uh, uh, parading the captives naked and humiliated through the streets. And everyone in 
the kingdom would join in that victory parade, celebrating the wealth and riches that that military leader has brought with him in that victory. Now imagine God's kingdom and Jesus, the great warrior. Imagine the threat that sin, death, and the accuser, the elemental spirits pose to God's kingdom. And now think about how Jesus went out to do battle against the greatest threat in the cosmos. But this battle, being very much in line with God's kingdom, was fought by Jesus through his own self-humiliation. It's the last thing the enemies of God expected, right? Jesus' triumph is in his humiliation, his shameful death on the cross. Jesus' death was his triumph. The enemies of God just do not expect that. And it makes me think about the Wonder Woman movie from 2017. You've seen that movie? Where, where Wonder Woman, it's, it's set in like World War I times, where uh, Ares, the god of war, is causing, you know, so it's, it's funny because it's like World War I is happening in, in this movie, but what's happening in the spiritual realm is Wonder Woman is fighting Ares, the god of war. And how does Wonder Woman win? Because of course she wins, because she's awesome. She's like, she's like a, a, the perfect hero. Well, the perfect like American hero. Um, she beats Ares. She destroys Ares. She, you know, she's, she finds out that she's the god killer. So she kills the god of war, Ares. And she kills him with violence. So I'm disappointed in this movie because... I'm disappointed in this movie because uh, when you kill, when you destroy violence with violence, what do you have left? Violence. So in a sense, Wonder Woman, when she destroys Ares, she becomes Ares. She becomes the god of war. But when Jesus went to his cosmic war against sin and death, he neutralized it by laying down his life Rather than fight, he laid down his life of his own accord. And it reveals sin and death and the accuser to be what they really are. It shows the grotesque nature of violence, guilt and condemnation. When Jesus said to, to the powers and principalities of darkness, do your worst, and the worst was done to him, everyone saw it was revealed that this is what evil does. What greater evil than to commit great evil against the most glorious, holy, and supreme? And so he died, and that was his triumph, and he rose again, and that brought shame to all of his enemies. Jesus is supreme. The powers and principalities of, of, of this present darkness, they can't, they can't sit down at the piano of your heart. They can only hum songs that resonate with, with our evil desires. But we belong. We belong to Jesus. This heart belongs to Jesus. Your heart belongs to him. So don't be held captive to anything less. And here's my final point. How can we participate with this victorious Savior? When we join in with this victory, we, we will make fools of sin and death and the accuser. And we get to join the victory parade where we look at the things that used to enslave us. You know what enslaves you. You look at those things and you mock them. And you go, oh, that's silly. 
Why, why would I give that the time of day when I have Christ? Christ is supreme. Well, how do you do that? You do it through repentance. Repentance is our way of entering into Christ's death. We turn from our old ways, and when we do that, it requires, and it kind of feels like death. It requires that we die to something. When we say, I, I will no longer be enslaved to that, we've begun the painful death of letting that thing go so that Jesus can give resurrection life to us. Accusation doesn't work on Christians because they aren't surprised by their sin. We're humbled by it. And that makes us run to Jesus to receive his forgiveness. And what does Jesus say? When we say, Jesus, this is what I've done. Jesus, this is my brokenness. This is my hurt. This is the, the situation that I can't handle and I don't know what to do about. What does Jesus say? He says, I know. I know about that. And I love you. So we have the opportunity to join the parade that puts to shame all of the sins and the powers of darkness that have enslaved us. What does that parade look like? Uh, well, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, we look at the seven deadly sins. We look at those and, and we say, I see you for what you are. We look at, at pride and gluttony and lust. We say, you, you're a liar. The promises that you offer are not real. And so we look at, at, at larger injustices, not just in our own heart, but in the world, and we say racism, nationalism, injustice, poverty. I see you for what you really are. You're a tyrant and a liar, and Christ is supreme. So don't, don't fight your sin like Wonder Woman fought Ares. Uh, don't fight against sin with another more sneaky sin. Um, that's, that's what being held captive to the powers and principalities, the elemental spirits, is all about. You have to fight, you have to fight sin with humble repentance. So, so don't fight the song of lust with the song of self-righteousness. Don't say, I'm a Christian, so I don't do that. Maybe you've defeated lust, but you've replaced it with self-righteousness and pride. And if self-control wins, if that pride wins, it's just another being held captive. It's not the freedom of, of faith and dependence on Christ. You fight lust with love for Jesus. You lay down your life in humble repentance and you say, Jesus, I'm weak. Be my strength. Help me to see as you see. Don't fight songs of envy and greed by being entranced with, with pride. You fight envy with open-handed contentment in the Father's love. The history of Christianity has been filled with people who have caught a glimpse of the victory of God in Christ. And they've joined the procession, you know, this parade of victory parade, by giving their lives away, by open-handedly giving their lives away. We have story after story of that. You have story after story of that, I'm sure, of people that you know who have given their life because they look at the things of this world and they see them for what they really are. It's silly when Christ is supreme. So will you come and die so that you might live? 
Will you, will you take the scary first step of repentance? Because it, it is scary. Will you take that and see the joy that comes from forgiveness of sins and being raised to new life? It's a life where there is no condemnation. So do you feel haunted by a sense of guilt and shame? Is your past continually reminding you of your failures? Are you overwhelmed with the confusion of, of your life? Then run to your victorious Savior. He is supreme over all things, over all the enemies of God. And, and let him sing his song over you. Let him sing his song. What, what is his song? Zephaniah 3.17. This is, this is Jesus' song over you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Jesus, we want to know your song. Let your song be the loudest song in our ears. Let our hearts resonate with the song of your love as we submit to you, as we humble ourselves and let you take control of our hearts to make beautiful music. Music so that the world would see that you are love. Music so that our families would know your love. Music so that justice would reign. Music so that this community would follow you and become more and more like you. So sing us that song, we pray. Let it resonate in our hearts and let our, let our hearts resonate together. We love you. Amen. Let's rise together in response to the word. Let's run to our, our Savior Jesus. He offers us freedom in our surrender to him, as we've heard. Freedom over our sins. Freedom over this feeling of hopelessness and being captive to the things of this world, to idols that in many ways capture our hearts that lead to destruction. So let's find our joy and our hope in our God. He's good. He's wonderful. He set us free.
one of my favorite things to do is offer the benediction because the people of God leave this place with something real it's not something just spiritual it's something real it's a mystery I can't explain it but when you receive the benediction all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ and then you go blessed to be a blessing so put your body in a posture of prayer because your body wants to worship too not just your heart so when I give the benediction hold your hands out because your body is a conduit for the blessings of God when you give a hug to someone who needs a hug when you give money to someone who needs money when you give food to someone who needs food when you give encouragement from the words coming out of your mouth you become the blessing of God and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church so go May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to smile down on you. May the Lord be gracious to you, turn his bright eyes to you, and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, life everlasting. Amen. Go in peace.